Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast for People of Hope Church. To learn more about our ministry in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, visit peopleofhope.church. Let's read together Matthew chapter 5. You'll also be up on your screen. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And so here's the first thing, the first letters in red that we see here, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus begins to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount a little bit this morning as we dive in. First of all, where is this happening? This is happening on the side of a mountain there among the rocks in an area near Capernaum in the northern part of what is modern-day Israel, and it's right overlooking the Sea of Galilee. You can go to, uh, to that region today and to the place where they believe uh, this most likely happened, and you can see that it's a hillside, it's the side of a mountain, and there are rocks where people could sit and recline and be all together there, and you're looking down over the water of the Sea of Galilee. That's a beautiful setting. And Jesus, it says, did this when he saw the crowds. Let's talk about the crowds. So who is this, the Sermon on the Mount for? It says very clearly in verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So it sounds almost like there were the crowds, Jesus withdrew up to the mountainside, the disciples came to him and he began to teach. It sounds like that it was just a small group of people. But there in your scriptures, turn over, it won't be on your screen, turn over to chapter 7. The very end of chapter 7, look what it says as the Sermon on the Mount concludes. It says in the very last verse here, verses uh, 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So somewhere in the disciples joined him and he taught and the crowds heard what he was teaching. We have to blend all that together and the best scholarship on all that reminds us of a few things about the people who followed Jesus as he did his miracles, as he taught, and as he went from town to town, village to village. There were large groups who were kind of hangers on. These were the folks who just wanted to see what it was all about, who just wanted to be about it. They were probably tweeting a few things that Jesus said every once in a while. These are people who just wanted to be a part of the moment, a part of the show. This was like one of those people who slows down to look at an accident. This is just, there's probably a lot of people who just wanted to kind of like, oh, what's going on over there? What's happening here? What's the crowd? What's going, is someone giving away something? What's happening? And then within that, you had a larger group of people who were following Jesus from place to place, men and women, who were absolutely bought in, sold, clear, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. They were believing in Jesus as Lord. This is more than just what we refer to as the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. So we've come out here, we've got the, the, the hangers on, the looky-loos, and then you come in from there and you've got this large group of people who are moving with Jesus from town to town. And then inside of that, you've got what becomes the 12. 
And then even inside of that, you've got Jesus having a little bit more of a special relationship with three of the disciples that he would take up for his transfiguration and have some more intimate, powerful moments with them along the way. So Jesus had all these different groups following him. So he had the three sort of insiders. He had the 12. He had the larger group of people who were totally sold out and believing. And then he had the larger crowds who were just sort of there for the show. My best understanding of what's happening here in Matthew chapter 5 is that when Jesus saw the crowds, the looky-loos and the hangers-on, and all of the masses of people, he withdrew up to the mountain and his disciples there, that were disciples in the Greek means those who were believing and following at that point, that's that little larger group. So it's not just the 12. It's those who were already believing in Jesus as Lord. That tells us a couple of things. Number one, that when you get to chapter 7 and it said the crowds were amazed at his teaching, that helps us understand that. And number two, it reminds us that the Sermon on the Mount is written to Christians. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus speaking to the people who already knew him as Lord. He did this, though, with an awareness and a, a sensitivity to the fact that there were probably people listening on the fringes who may not yet know who he is, may not yet understand who he is, may not yet be fully bought in. But the aim, the focus, the central part is this is some teaching for the people of God. And that's how we try to approach things at our church. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So they're on the mountainside teaching those who were not just the inner circle, but those who had already committed to believing in Jesus as Lord. Now, what is this? What is this Sermon on the Mount? We've talked about the who. We've talked about the where. Now we're talking about the what. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells us how he wants us to live. That's why the series is titled Details, How Jesus Wants Us to Live. We're going to work really hard in this series through chapter 5, through chapter 6, and through chapter 7 to make it as practical as we possibly can because Jesus was not just pontificating and giving lofty thought uh, about um, spirituality. Jesus was giving people details. Think about this for a minute. Throughout these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is going to go into very specific detail with very specific instruction about relationships, about anger, about grief, about lust and sexuality, about persecution, about money, about revenge, about prayer, about worry, about judging others, about faith, about obedience, and about love. There's going to be a whole lot of stuff in here where Jesus is going to say, let's pull it down out of the clouds of we all just love God, with Jesus saying, I'm going to tell you how I want you to live. These are the words in red. These are the instructions of Jesus. So there on the mountainside, with the people who were already believing in him, he is giving these detailed, specific instructions. They're instructions, but they're also an invitation. And I want you to hear that thread throughout this series. It's an invitation to come and partake, come and enjoy of all of the power and privileges that come with belonging to Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. Live this way and you will enjoy all that is good about being mine. 
Jesus is saying, live this way and you will enjoy all of the power of the kingdom of heaven available to you. Live this way and come and enjoy all that comes with belonging to me. We need to remember that the standards in the Sermon on the Mount are super high. They are really, really high. As a matter of fact, they can almost look impossible. And the reality is they are impossible apart from hoping in Jesus. Because most of us in this room, it doesn't take us five minutes to wander into disobedience. Hello? It doesn't take long for us to get off the main road. And here, we're going to have these standards of how we should handle our anger, how we should handle our grief, how we should handle our money, how we should handle our sexuality, how we should handle our marriages, how we should handle all of these issues that are going to be part of real life. And the standard's going to be really high because our Jesus is inviting us and calling us to live a separate, called-out life in this world. To put on display how the people of God live differently. And if it sounds so high that you can't get to it, if it sounds so high that it just sounds nearly impossible, it is impossible unless you are letting him live and accomplish it through you. The reality of the Sermon on the Mount is it is loaded with this phrase, I can't, but he can. And we're going to be challenged in this. I want us to understand that this thing is impossible. We cannot live out the details of the Sermon on the Mount without new life, without new priorities, and without new power. What I'm talking about is you really, really need to be a Christian if you want to accomplish the details of the Sermon on the Mount. You need new life. You need to be under new management, by the way. That's what being a Christian really is. You're coming under new management in your life. I'm no longer following myself. I am going the way of Jesus as his disciple. He is my Lord and leader, and I'm following and obeying happily. I need new life, new management. I need new priorities. The priorities aren't about what feels good to me. The priorities are what pleases you, O oh God. The priorities aren't what is the easiest solution. The priority is what pleases you, oh God. The priority isn't what can I accomplish. The priority is where is God calling me to trust him to accomplish? It is staggeringly high in standard and we cannot do it without new life, new priorities, new management, new power. The Sermon on the Mount is an absolute call to radical discipleship. And if you come along with us in this study, if you will journey with me throughout this study, verse by verse, word by word, through this study, let me tell you some things that will happen in your life if you do. You will find deeper devotion to Jesus as a disciple. Anybody need that in their world? 
you will find a better self for the other people in your world. If you want to be a better husband for your spouse, a better wife for your spouse, a better parent for your kids, a more obedient and, and respectful and, and pleasing child to your parents, if you want to, going to have a better self that is Christ-centered, the Sermon on the Mount can do that kind of work in your life you come along in this journey of radical discipleship, you will have a life that is less worldly. A life that is less worldly. If you come along in this journey, you will have greater contentment and less worry. Anybody need that? If you come along in this journey, it will stretch you and humble you. So get ready. It will stretch you and humble you, but that's okay because you and I are not on a search for how we can keep God happy while we live any other way we want to. We are on a search for what pleases our Lord. We are on a search for how we can live a life that is the way he wants us to live. That's what it means to be disciples of Jesus. So would you come up with me on the side of the mountain? And would you find a rock to sit on? And would you drink it all in for 38 or 39 weeks? And when you say to Jesus, Lord, I need you. I can't, but you can. And I'm yours. Lord, how do you want me to live? listening. It's going to stretch us. It's going to humble us, but it's going to be amazing. We need this. And I'm ready. How about you? Hello? Let's go. Our first portion this morning is in Matthew 5 verse 3. Matthew 5, verse 3, that's the first words in red, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says to these listeners, and he's saying to you and to me this morning, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of God. Of heaven, And this morning I've got up here on the screen a, a little slide with, with this verse broken down. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the red underlined part, a little bit of time in the blue underlined part, and a little bit of time in the yellow underlined part. Those are the, the critical sections to understanding this individual verse and what's on the heart of Jesus. The first part of that, number one, we're going to look at is the word blessed. What is the word Blessed. Blessed describes the condition of a person more than the emotions of a person. You may have grown up in an environment where you heard that blessed means happy. Well, that's sort of what it means, but it has some nuance to it that will help us understand it better. What it really is saying is Jesus is saying, you should be happy because you are favored by God. That's what blessed means. You should be happy because you are favored by God. And in these Beatitudes, he's going to describe a situation and a spiritual reality that comes out of it and why they should be happy. 
It's one of those words that we need to understand. Let me put it in some modern terminology for you. Jesus is saying, you are all set. (laughs) You have got it made. Congrats. If you are poor in spirit, you are all set. Blessed are you. Congrats to you. One other little modern phrasing of it would be, man, it is really good to be you. It is really good to be you right now. If you are poor in spirit, it is really good to be you right now because yours is the kingdom of heaven. The people listening on the mountainside would have fully understood the word blessed. It's important that you and I understand the word blessed because if you don't really understand the way that Jesus is congratulating, the way that Jesus is describing the condition of who you are, you're in a position, you're in a place. When I observe your life, I look at you and go, man, it's really good to be you right now when you're poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Man, you've got it made. You are set. Congrats. Because if you don't understand the word blessed, you can look at that and go, how could being poor in spirit be something where someone goes, you're hashtag blessed? <laughs> how, in the word, how in the world is it that, that being poor in spirit is a blessing? Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying, look at this beautiful, wonderful blessing in your life of being poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, if you are poor in spirit, you are right where you need to be. Good for you. It's really good to be you. Congrats. You got it made. You are all set. Blessed is the first word here in this verse. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here, and we're going to cover number two, the kingdom of heaven part, because I want to kind of work our way back to the poor in spirit. The third part of that verse is your, uh, the second part of the verse that we're going to look at is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God. If, you've look at, if you look at some of the other gospels and you see someone, one of the writers call it the kingdom of God and one of the writers call it the kingdom of heaven, they're basically referring to the same thing. Don't get tripped up by that. It's pretty much synonymous. The kingdom of heaven is the present and future rule and reign of Christ, both spiritual and material. This is up here on your screen for you. The present and future rule and reign of Christ, both spiritual and material. Let's unpack that. What you have in this idea of the kingdom of heaven is, is that wherever Jesus is, he's reigning. And there on the mountainside next to the Sea of Galilee, he was reigning. And if you are alive in Christ, if you've believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he is in your heart right now, and he is reigning in your heart right now. The kingdom of heaven is in your heart, believer. The people of Israel, the Jewish leaders, in their arrogance and in their stubbornness, they were rejecting Jesus because they thought the coming of the kingdom of God will be military. The coming of the kingdom of God will be an overthrow of the Roman Empire. The coming of the kingdom of God will be this establishment of castles and flags and temples and buildings. 
But the coming of the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ. It is both physical and material. It is also spiritual. Theologians speak of it this way, that the kingdom of heaven coming, the kingdom of God coming, is both now and not yet. Now and not yet. Jesus is reigning spiritually on the earth. Jesus is reigning in your life, in your heart, if you're a believer in Christ. But there will come a day when the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes and Satan is annihilated forever and sin is dealt with and the reign of Christ will be physical and material with conquering and defeating of enemies and putting away of sin, sick, sin, sickness, and death forever. There will come a day and the new heaven and the new earth will come. But the kingdom of heaven has already come. It is now spiritual and it will one day be material. It is both now and not yet. The kingdom of heaven, let's unpack that a little bit more. The kingdom of heaven is also extending to the sovereignty of God. While Jesus may not have put sin away and Satan away yet, while he has not been dealt with fully yet, God is still sovereign on the earth. Amen? God still has absolute authority and management in real time, perfectly managing every system and being in existence. Down to the micro level, to the farthest edges of the galaxies we cannot see with a telescope. He is still sovereign, accomplishing his will, sovereign over all things spiritual and material. In Colossians 1.13 Paul tells us that because we have believed in Jesus, we have been transferred from the, does anybody know? The kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So when you believe in Jesus, you've been brought into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is in your heart. Jesus is ruling and reigning in your heart. If you believe in Jesus, you belong to him. And so here we go into all this stuff, all of the power, all of the potential, all of the privilege that comes with belonging to Jesus is yours because you have believed in Jesus. The kingdom has come in your heart. It is good to belong to Jesus, amen? You are new, you are forgiven. You are clean, you are free, and sin no longer has a grip on your life. I don't know if you've remind, been reminded of that lately, but when you and I sin, if we're Christians, we embrace the sin, the sin does not embrace us. Because we've been set free, hallelujah. When Jesus died on the cross, he conquered sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. It is good to belong to Jesus. And when you belong to Jesus, here's what being in the kingdom means. You're a prince or a princess in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what this means. Your father is the king. And you can ask and seek and knock. We'll get to that in chapter seven. When you're in the kingdom, when the kingdom has come in your life, the limitless power 
of heaven is only a prayer away. Can we let that kind of faith swell in our hearts this morning? The kingdom of heaven is yours. Whoa. That means that over my life, Jesus is reigning and ruling. I'm not dirty and filthy and shame-covered because of my sinful past. Jesus paid it all. That's who I am. Because the kingdom of heaven has come, the kingdom of heaven is mine. The king is now my father. And he has invited me to eat at his table every day. And he calls me son. And he calls you son or daughter. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is ruling and reigning, and you have the power of the kingdom of heaven against the sin that you're battling in your life right now. You have the power of the kingdom of heaven to come up against the the discouragement and the struggle and the regret and the disappointment and the grief and all the things that come against you in your life. The kingdom has come if you've believed in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is all of the power and potential and privilege that comes with belonging to Jesus. So can you now, just with these two parts, leave this on the screen right here, can you just with these two parts, you, you believed in Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is in your life. Do you now see the congratulations? Do you now see, blessed are you? Do you now see, Jesus would say, it's really good to be you because the kingdom of heaven is yours. But there's a condition in here. There's a reason Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is yours. And it's that middle part. Blessed are you. Congratulations to you. You should rejoice. You should be happy because you've got it made. You are set. Boy, it's really good to be you. The kingdom of heaven is yours because you are poor in spirit. So let's look at that one. It's the last part we'll look at this morning. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? First of all, be, to be poor in spirit describes a spiritual condition, not feelings of sadness, depression, or disappointment. To be poor of spirit does not mean that you are sad. It is a spiritual issue. You are poor in spirit when you are absolutely near desperation, when you are deeply unsatisfied in life, when you are painfully discontent, when you are overall stuck in life. That's when you are aware that the bucket of your spiritual life is empty. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Let me speak some of these words again and expound on them a little bit more. You are poor in spirit when you are near desperation, when you are deeply unsatisfied in life, when you are painfully discontent, when you are overall stuck because, listen carefully, 
Because what you've been doing and how you've been approaching life isn't working. The poor in spirit may or may not be poor financially. The poor in spirit are the ones who are like, I'm doing me. I'm doing life. This is the way I'm doing life. This is the way I go at it. This is the way I see it. I do these things and I have those things over there and I have this life and private life and probably a couple of secrets in my world and I'm doing these things over here and I'm just taking care of things I want. I'm really taking care of me and I'm doing life the way I want to do it and I don't really open up about stuff in my heart. I don't talk about that stuff. I'm doing my life and it's not really working because I'm Miserable, painfully discontent, and deeply unsatisfied. Peace is elusive. Just can't find peace in your heart. You can't buy enough things for it to ever be enough. You can't have enough people around you for it to ever be enough. And while peace is elusive, hopelessness is unpacking its bags and moving into your heart. You could be lonely in a room full of family and friends when you're poor in spirit. You could afford to buy anything you want and none of it would give you satisfaction in your heart. See, poor in spirit is a spiritual issue. To be poor in spirit is to be at the end of yourself, to be at the end of your rope, to be bankrupt spiritually, fully aware, listen to this, that you cannot manufacture peace. You cannot create satisfaction in your heart. You cannot fill up your own heart. And when you get to this place of going, I can't do it, I can't. When you get to the place of I can't, when you get to the place of the the way I've been doing life is not going very well. The way I've been approaching family is not working. The way I've been approaching my principles and priorities is not working. I've just been buying lots of stuff and none of that makes me satisfied on the inside. I am so miserable. I may have the biggest smile on my face, but I am absolutely miserable and I just want some peace in my life. And I don't mean quiet. I just mean I want it to not be so angry and rageful and resentful and so hungry on the inside. I can't anymore. When you get to the I can't, Jesus says, you there? Blessed are you. Are you really aware that you can't do it yourself? Are you really aware that you can't create peace in your heart? Are you really aware that you cannot manufacture satisfaction down deep in your own life? Are you really aware that you can't? Beautiful, stay right there. Blessed are you, because now you're ready 
to call on the mercy of God. Now you're ready for heaven to flood your life. When you get to this place, Jesus says you've got it made. Jesus says it's good to be you because you're ready to cry out to God for mercy. One of my favorite preachers from the 20th century is a British pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says this, to be poor in spirit is the complete absence of pride. Pride says, I can do it. Pride says, I don't need any help. Pride says, I'm going to do it my way. Pride says, I got this. Being poor in spirit, being spiritually bankrupt, is one who says, I, I don't have this. Lord, I need you. I need you. Because I got lots of material things and I'm so, so unsatisfied. And I'm in my 40s and I hate my life. I got people and awards and prestige and privilege and an office and a title. But I'm bankrupt. In my spirit, I am so poor. When you get there, Jesus says, Congratulations. Now you're ready for the mercy of God. You see, understanding this first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is to understand what it is to be filled with the kingdom of heaven in your life. Before you can be filled there's an emptying that needs to be taken, that needs to take place. Self-reliance. Self-confidence. I got this. If I just buy something else, I'll feel something I'll be happy. If I just find somebody to date or marry, I'll be happy. I can't. I can't. And when you empty yourself of self-importance, and self-reliance. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Life to the full in here.
Look at this verse one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is waiting for you and for me to say, I can't. Jesus is waiting for you and for me to say, all right, I'm going to empty my self-importance, my self-reliance, so that the kingdom of heaven could come into our lives. Let me show you this paraphrase of the verse that I put together. You are set. You've got it made when you are empty of self-importance and self-reliance. Then you are ready to have the power and privilege of heaven fill you up completely. Getting to a place of being aware that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you cannot manufacture peace, that you cannot build or create your own satisfaction in your heart, that is a very dark reality because you can feel a little hopeless in that. I can't, I can't, I can't. And it almost echoes out into time. I can't. Oh no, I can't. Here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God looked at all of us in our I can't. And he said, let me make a way for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And friends, that life is not streets of gold behind the gates of heaven. That life is now and forever with Jesus ruling and reigning in your heart with all of the privileges, with all of the power of the kingdom of heaven to be yours. I hope that's good news to you this morning. God has not left us in our helplessness. God has not left us in our poverty. He said, I know you can't. Here's my son. So this morning, I have two completing questions, two two final questions for the room. Number one, have you believed in Jesus yet? Have you become his disciple? Are you in the kingdom? Is the kingdom in you? Have you come to the place to say, I have nothing of my own to stand before God. I cannot earn God's forgiveness. I don't have anything to offer God. So I will come to him open-armed and humble in repentance, and I will say to God, I can't. I can't save myself. I can't clean up my heart. I can't undo what I've done. I can't make myself have peace. So would you forgive my sins? If you have not believed in Jesus, then you need to do that this morning. You need to empty so that you can be filled.
God sent his son Jesus and he died on a cross as a substitute for your guilt and for my guilt. You and I are the ones who deserve to suffer for our sins. But God in his great love for us gave his son Jesus and Jesus took what you and I deserved. And when Jesus, the sinless son of God died, God considered your debt and my debt paid in, somebody help me, full. Jesus died for you and for your sinfulness and God raised him from the dead three days later. Jesus is alive and ruling and reigning and preparing a place for us. And someday he's coming again. But if you've not believed in Jesus, you need to do that today. And in your heart, in your heart, just between you and God, God, forgive me of my sins. I believe what you did for me on the cross. I believe that you are God's son and I wanna be your disciple. I wanna go your way. I am emptying so that I can be filled with your life. Here's the second question this morning for believers in the room. Are you emptying yourself every day of self-reliance? Are you emptying yourself every day, coming to God in a fresh poverty of spirit, saying, Lord, I can't parent today, but you can. Lord, I can't marriage today, but you can. Lord, I can't put up with the office environment today. So I'm emptying. I'm telling you, Lord, here in the morning, before I reach for the doorknob to head out to my day, I'm telling you, I can't. Jesus wants each of us to have that experience of saying to the Lord on a daily basis, all that is in front of me on this day, I do not have it all. I cannot pull it all off. I cannot make it happen. I cannot change a life. I cannot control my kids. I cannot be everything my spouse wants them to be. I can't. And when you and I get to the I can't, there in your kitchen table or in your living room or in your special chair at your house or sitting in your car when you're getting ready to pull out for the day next to your locker, wherever you are, and you say to Jesus, I can't. Jesus, who loves you and gave his life for you, looks at you and says, now, now you're ready. So let me live my life through you today. I know you can't, but I can. I can and I'd be happy to. I speak this word to all who are gifted and brilliant and talented. It is harder for you to realize your spiritual poverty because you can often pull it off and skate and coast. That's not the best place to be. The best place to be is the I can't. You can't manufacture your peace. You cannot fix your family. You cannot manage your life. But God can. Amen? Amen. 
Father, we submit ourselves to you today. We thank you for this teaching this morning, God, and this challenge over us, Lord, to let go of our self-reliance. Would you grow us up to be men and women pleasing to you in the way that we empty ourself of self? Oh God, there's too much of me in me. Oh God, there's too much of me in me. Lord, teach me the value of humbling myself and pouring out to be filled. Thank you, Jesus, for being my way maker. Thank you, Jesus, for the invitation to empty so that we can have a filling like we've never dreamed of. We love you.